number 96-1866, Elida Starr Gebser and Elida Jean McCulloch versus the Lago Vista Independent School District. Mr. Weldon. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The issue in this case is the standard under which a school district can be held liable for violation of Title IX of the Education Amendments when one of its teachers intentionally discriminates against one of his students by engaging in sexual harassment of it. Petitioner was clearly subjected to intentional uh, discrimination under, using the terminology of the statute, under the educational programs and activities provided by the respondent. Was there some showing that it was discriminatory? Because I, I read many of the statements in the, in the various briefs that proceed, and there's virtually no mention of discrimination. There's a lot of mention of har har sexual harassment. We're using, in the briefs uh, and in the documents in the case that are in the joint appendix, we're using the term sexual harassment as synonymous with discrimination. And I believe the Franklin Court... Well, I think in Ancali we said it wasn't. Well, uh, You have to show that the treatment, not only that the treatment was harassing, but that it was, uh, you were treating one sex on a basis that you would not have treated the other sex. And I think that's amply shown by the record in this case, and, and uh, I think that the Franklin case simply stands for the proposition that when a teacher uh, intentionally harasses a student, that is discrimination based on sex. Well, uh, the Franklin case said there's a private cause of action. Yes, sir. Uh, but are, are you saying that it would be enough if you showed there was just harassment of a, of a student by uh, a teacher of a different sex? If, if the harassment was based on sex, yes. Well, I think, the, I think the statute says you have to discriminate on the basis of sex. You have to the teacher has to treat students of one sex differently from another. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. The, 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 the teacher singled out this young girl. Because of her sex? Because of her sex. The Fifth Circuit standard from which we appeal would require proof of actual knowledge, not only in the school district generally, but in the superior of the, of the teacher who was guilty of the discrimination, or at least in some person who had immediate uh, power over that teacher with respect to... Well, you know, I think, I think the, the tough uh, question we need to answer here is whether a suit under Title IX, which this is, I think, Yes, should be governed by the principles of Title VII suits, or whether there is some different standard here under Title IX, because essentially it's a federal uh, financial grant program under Title IX. And it's quite possible that agency principles don't apply to Title IX at all. Are you going to address that question? I'll do it right now. The 
There are obvious similarities between Title VII and Title IX in that they have as their object the prevention or redress of sexual discrimination, but there are important differences as well. Uh, as we argue in some detail in the brief, those differences lead, I think, to the conclusion that Title IX provides wider protection, uh, even though it does not use the word agent in a definitional way as Title VII does with respect to employers. The reason for that is that the focus of the, t of the two statutes is quite different. The focus in Title VII uh, says is on the employer, and it tells what the employer and his agents are prohibited from doing. Uh, as the court pointed out early on in the Cannon case, the focus of Title IX is completely different. The focus there is on the beneficiary, and the focus is on uh, discrimination without respect to who it might be guilty of the discrimination. Well, what, what about the, the, the supposed constitutional distinction between them? I mean, the, the argument is, is being made on the other side uh, that under uh, what is, in effect, a, a spending power, uh, a piece of spending power legislation, uh, an obligation cannot be imposed upon the government that takes the money, which is not very clearly spelled out. And if the standard of liability for the employer is not clearly spelled out, then the only standard that can be applied is that which necessarily would be applied if there's going to be liability at all, i.e., in this case, actual knowledge. What's, what's your response to that argument? The, the respondent, with all respect, I think overreads the spending clause and overreads the, uh, the cases that, that construe the spending clause. Uh, my, my belief is, and I'm referring specifically to Pinhurst, my belief is that the a spending clause statute must fairly inform the recipient of the funds of what uh, the conditions of the funding are. Uh, at the time in question in this case, uh, the school district obviously knew the contents of Title IX. The school district obviously knew the contents of regulations which have the force of statute because the statute authorizes the Department of Education and predecessor agencies to enact these regulations. Well, are you saying that there were regulations at the time uh, in question here uh, that indicated that the standard of employer liability for employee conduct would be something different from actual knowledge? That would be my, what my, did they my say? disagreement with the implication of your question, Justice Souter, and that is that I do not believe that the Pinhurst case or any of the spending clause clause cases require any extensive catalog of what facts or what fact patterns might trigger uh, liability any more than the spending clause requires a, a, an exhaustive listing of the potential remedies uh, that might follow if there is a violation. Do you, do you draw any distinction between uh, the significance of the spending clause for primary liability, i.e. the liability of the employee uh, or, or, or the conduct uh, which could give rise to liability? Uh, and on the other hand, uh, the significance of, of the spending clause argument uh, for determinations of, uh, of imputed or vicarious liability. Uh, are the implications different in those, uh, for those two different questions? I think to the extent that there are differences, I think they get resolved the same way. I think that the, the spending clause simply, and I don't mean to oversimplify, but simply requires that the recipient of federal funds have some idea some clear idea uh, what the what the uh, conditions of accepting the fund are. And here I find no ambiguity in anything that the school district must and, have And known. of course, uh, it's sort of swallowing the camel and straining out the gnat. If, in as much as uh, the statute doesn't even show on its face that there's a private cause of action at all. Yes, sir. If we really believe strongly in the in the uh, in the principle that spending clause impositions upon the states must be clearly expressed. 
um, there wouldn't be a cause of action here at all, right? If I may, Justice Scalia, uh, I'll invoke your concurring opinion in the Franklin case uh, and simply observe that, that a couple of bridges have been crossed. No, I'm, but I'm saying it's, it's, we're sort of switching, uh, sw switching the music if, if, if having created the uh, cause of action in the face of its non-expression, despite the fact that this is a spending thing, we suddenly uh, get very uh, uh, picky, I suppose, about what the content of that cause of action is. Well, I, of course, Cannon was decided long before we before we had, we had adopted this rule about spending clause uh, certainties. I understand that, but 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 I'd like to point out, as you pointed out in that same concurring opinion, that Congress then took subsequent action, right, with the with the uh, enactment of the Civil Rights Bill that extended Title IX to the states. Quite so. And and I believe that it has to be taken in the context of the Cannon oh, I'm, case. I'm not, I'm not suggesting going back on it, but I'm suggesting that an I'm I'm trying to help you. Never mind. <laughs> It seems to me an argument in your favor that, that we've already taken the step and Congress has accepted it of creating this cause of action in the teeth of its, its non-appearance in the statute. And, the, and then, of course, the second step was to recognize in Franklin that uh, despite the silence of the statute, which obviously being implied would be silent, uh, that uh, the presumption is that all reasonable remedies or usual remedies apply. May I ask but, the extent to which uh, Title VII would be the model, do you accept that the statutory caps that are in Title VII would apply under Title IX? Your Honor, I haven't read the statute closely, but I think the statute is, is, is specific with respect to Title VII. Uh, I think it would be entirely appropriate for Congress to consider uh, whether enacting a statute uh, imposing caps on Title IX precisely the way they have done for Title VII. Uh, but I do yes, but it's not there now, and yet this Title IX tells us very little. So we look, we fill in the gaps, I think you suggest, by looking to the law built up under Title VII. So m one question was, uh, but you wouldn't take the, the caps from the statute. I, I guess that's your answer is no, not unless Congress imposed them. I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously a policy consideration, but with all deference, I think it's probably, my view is that it's a legislative policy consideration and not a judicial one. But the judicial, we, um, we have crafted this, uh, um, this claim, and so we have to give it some content, too, because where else are we going to look? Co Congress hasn't done it. And again, your, your question is specifically with so regard to So I said... Well, one thing to do is to say, we'll do this the same way that, as Title VII, so we'll incorporate the Title VII case law and the si Title VII statutory revisions, but you say no. I think the Title VII cases are an appropriate analog. I think the court reflected at least that instinct, I wouldn't call it a holding, by its reference to the Meritor case in the midst of the Franklin case. But I think that Title VII is just an analog and not a direct roadmap, and I think the reason for that is principally because, first of all, two, two things. The context of, of Title IX is significantly different uh, than the context of Title VII. Title IX obviously applies to education uh, from kindergarten or preschool all the way up to postgraduate. Uh, and, uh, and the other reason is the text of the statutes are so com completely different. Uh, do, do we... Do you think we, we could adopt uh, one, uh, one standard of liability uh, for the private right of action uh, and, and permit uh, HHS to use a different standard for the cutting off of uh, 
of funds under Title IX, or do we or do, do, do we have to go in lockstep with the? I mean, assuming we're making it up, as, as Justice uh, Ginsburg suggests, uh, do, do we have to make it up in lockstep with HHS, or can you know? Or, you understand what I'm asking? I Suppose I if you do if you do X, yes. you are liable for the cutting off of federal funds under the regulations issued by the Secretary, which the Secretary has authority to issue. That's right. And the, authority has, the Secretary has no authority to issue regulations about private causes of action, which, which we created. Does our private cause of action have to make the basis of liability the same thing that the Secretary says is the basis of cutting off federal funds? I do not think so. I, I, frankly, that's not a question that's concerned to me, uh, right. occurred to me in my preparation, but I do not think so. I don't think so because I think what, what would govern the case, the court in these decisions is the text of Title IX and the text of the actual regulations, the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, that were adopted implementing Title IX as the Department was authorized to do. So we have to follow those regulations, you say. If it's a violation of the regs, it, 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 it's a basis for liability in the private cause of action. I just want to point out, yes, but I want to point out that, that at least in my mind, there's a considerable distinction between the regulations and the Code of Federal Regulations, which are fairly minimal, as compared to the guidelines, which are merely intended, I believe, and, have, and do not have the same statutory force as the regulations. The guidelines are a means of educating school districts and helping them implement Title IX, but they do not have the, the force of law with in the same way. It, the, the are, are the school districts bound to the guidelines to the extent that if they don't follow them, they can have their funds cut off? I thought they could. The, the government is going to argue that yeah. extensively, and I don't want to anticipate the government's argument too much, and I certainly wouldn't want to disagree with them, but my own personal answer to that would be not necessarily. Well, you indicated that because of this, uh, the spending clause nature of this act, that the municipality or the governmental entity must be aware of the conditions under which its funds might be cut off. It, yes, sir. It, it seems to me, if, if that's so, uh, that it is very difficult to say that they accepted the funds uh, knowing that they would be cut off when there was some act occurring of which they had no knowledge. And the principal reason in this case that they did not have any knowledge is that they failed to follow the regulations which have the force of law. And the regulations required not only the adoption of an anti-discrimination policy, which they uh, have summary judgment establishing that they did, uh, but a complaint procedure and publicizing that complaint procedure to the student body. And that is our principal and primary argument, that by failing to follow that regulation, they created for themselves what the Fifth Circuit has now recognized as an absolute defense. Well, well some, some, somewhat as in, as in the last case, uh, this, this uh, egregious criminal, uh, outrageous conduct, uh, everyone, including the student, would know that the board wouldn't tolerate for a second. That's true. But the, but the testimony in the case was from the student. She did not know when, when the approaches by the teacher were merely verbal in the form of insinuations and suggestions. Uh, he was beginning his concentrated campaign to seduce her. Uh, she did not know, she did not, I'm sorry, she did not know to whom she could turn. She did not know that there were procedures, that she did not know that there was a complaint procedure, and she would have but utilized... She, she's it. not, that's, that's not the gravamen of her complaint, which were not the initial overtures. But if... 
she had known that there was a complaint procedure, I mean, that, that, that was at that point, I would suggest to you, a mild form of sexual discrimination in the form of harassment uh, because of the suggestive nature of the remarks. Uh, if she had known about it, she would have complained, she said, and if she had complained and effective action had been taken at that point, then her damages would be much uh, different and basically we would not be in court uh, at all much less how, how old was she at this time? She was 13 when she met the teacher. He was, she was what? approximately 14 when he began making these, uh, not, not approximately, she was 14 when she, he began making these suggestive remarks and the relationship became physical before she became 15, ended when she was 15. And, and she didn't know that there were people in positions of authority over the teacher? to whom she could complain, like a school principal? Did she know that the school principal of course she knew that. had authority over the teacher? Of course she knew that, but she didn't know those people personally. There, there were other girls who were also approached by, by this man and, and who did indeed take that course, didn't they? And, and that is often going to be the case. There are often going to be parents who have the initiative well, to go and... Well, she her parents. I beg your pardon? That's, in the one case, the children told their parents what had been said by the teacher... I take it that this girl's parents did not know what was going on until they were caught in the act. Um, so the, the, it's not so clear to me that the best policy in the world would have been used by this young woman, but, but suppose that one of the things you complain about is that there was kind of this nebulous policy, you didn't know who was the right person to complain to. Suppose there was a just the right kind of policy, the kind that NEA describes in its brief. And yet the same thing went on. Would the school district be liable if it made its best efforts to have as clear a policy and as clear an identification of the person in charge of implementation? Would, would that make any difference? Yes, it makes a big difference. But I suggest to you, and here's one of the reasons that, it, that the text, or rather the context of Title IX, schools dealing with, with, with uh, uh, students of all ages, is important, important consideration. It would make a big difference the older and more sophisticated the student was uh, toward imposing on her a duty to utilize the complaint procedures. But if you're talking about a seven or eight-year-old, as, for example, was considered by the Fifth Circuit in the, in the case called Kennetillo, uh, then you, you have obviously completely different situations. Uh, but let's take this case, and she's 14 and 15, and, and they do have, they've done the best job that they can with putting a policy in place, telling the students about it, telling the teachers about it, identifying the right official to call. And may I also assume in, in my answer to you that, uh, that there's nothing so flagrant about the behavior of the teacher and student that a reasonable person would... Uh, no, I mean, I take this case, and the only thing that I'm changing, see, yes. one of the things you said, there's a policy that's very um, fuzzy, nobody knew who to call. Or, um, suppose we make it the best policy. I, I want to know, as I asked in the last case, does it make any difference? It, it does make a difference, uh, but because we are talking about 14s and 15-year-olds, I think it makes uh, less of a difference than it might for an adult in the workplace under Title VII. Well, what's the theory of the difference? The theory of the difference is the employer has done all that the employer could do, and therefore it would be unfair to impose liability on any theory? Well, that's why it's a harder case, but I, I would like to come back no, to No, but you said it would make a difference, and I want to know what the theory of the difference is. 
The theory of the difference is that you cannot expect even 14, 15-year-old girls uh, to have the same presence of mind, the same degree of initiative. No, I, I understand that. But from the employer's standpoint, once the employer has promulgated the perfect policy in the world, yes. you say it makes a difference. And, and is it because the employer has done all the employer can do, uh, or is there some other theory? The other theory, and, and this would depend on, the, again, the factual context, the other theory would depend on whether the sexual discrimination is at the hands of a teacher uh, who is exploiting his educational control and authority over the student. It, it, it would not lead to liability in a situation involving peer harassment. It would not lead to liability. I think you've answered the question, Mr. Weldon. Thank you. We'll hear now from you, Ms. Brinkman. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I think it's important to focus on the uh, Court of Appeals' erroneously restriction in this case of the Court's customary remedial powers that this Court recognized in Franklin to award all appropriate remedies um, in a case of sexual harassment discrimination under Title IX. The Court of Appeals here held that damage awards would be appropriate only if a higher-ranking employee knew of the harassment and failed to stop it. The absence of explicit notice by a high-ranking official should not automatically insulate the recipient from liability. This is particularly true whereas here the district did not have a policy um, to prohibit discrimination or a procedure for effective reporting of that. Why shouldn't we require that the district, in order to be liable, have a policy that permits discrimination, that affirmatively permits it? As the way the statute reads is no one shall be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any educational program or activity. Not in connection with, but under. And I thought it was mainly uh, directed at uh, educational programs that, that allow sports for boys, no sports for girls, uh, things of that sort. That is discrimination under the program. Well, Your Honor, the... In other words, why shouldn't we apply the same kind of a test we apply in, in, in 1983 cases? That there has to be a policy of the, of the school, as far as private liability is concerned, a policy of discriminating. Your Honor, the um, differences between Title IX and um, Section 1983 demonstrate that that would not be an appropriate application. First and foremost, the reasons underlying the 1983 standard, according to this Court's opinions, are rooted in the text of Section 1983 and its history. And the text of 1983 says any person who causes another to be, um, have their rights violated shall be subject to suit. This text of Title IX is very different. It is a condition on receipt of federal funds. A recipient receives those funds and knows that under that program and activity, under its program's activities, there cannot be um, a denial of admission, exclusion from the benefits of vacation, or discrimination under that program based on um, sex. Right, and I think it's reasonable to read that to mean, you know, in accordance with the policies of that program. Well, you're being discriminated against under the program if the program, by policy, does, does not treat you equally. But, Your Honor, a recipient, this school district, just like any other entity that can only act through human agents, and any discrimination under its program activities is going to be carried out by its human agents. And there is no reason Same to Same argument was made in 1983, and somehow we've stumbled through. But, Your Honor, in addition to the text of Section 1983, which is remarkably different from Title IX, there's also the history and what led I'm this I'm unsympathetic to your arguments based on the text of Title IX, inasmuch as Title IX doesn't even create a cause of action at all. Well, Your Honor, as um, my colleague mentioned, we've, we've crossed that bridge, and, in fact, acts by Congress since then have reinforced 
the breadth of Title IX, and as you, um, your concurrence and Franklin pointed out, Congress enacted a um, statute to abrogate 11th Amendment immunity, and there specifically refers to legal remedies. And I accept all that, but we're not in an area where we're bound very tightly to the text. Your Honor, I think I, the other... May I just ask you this question? Of course, in canon, we held that Congress implicitly did intend a remedy. We didn't say a word about creating any elements of causes of action or substantive liability. That isn't made up. That's all what we thought Congress meant. And is there any difference between the standard that would be applied for a revocation of funds under the congressional standard as implemented by regulations and the standard should be applied here? No, Your Honor, we don't believe so. What the um, department... So you're arguing that on these facts, the funds could be revoked for this school district? Yes, but I have to qualify that there is a statutory requirement placed on the Department of Education to make preliminary steps at voluntary conciliation because of the extreme nature of cutting off funds. And what the court has recognized is that a private damage remedy um, stops short of that and also serves another function of Title IX, is that's its remedial purpose. We believe that when there's a violation of Title IX, as this court said in Franklin, the presumption is that all appropriate remedies apply, and there's no basis for restricting court's authority to do that. And I just want to address the concern about the amount of damages that um, Justice Ginsburg brought up with that cap under Title VII. First of all, I think it's important to um, realize that there are other um, damages remedies that can be obtained um, against school districts, for example, Title VII, and there is now that cap, and there could certainly be um, a guidance for courts to look to, but along with the inherent power of courts to order remedies is also the inherent authority to remit damages. We also Ms. would Brinkman, point out... I'm not sure we get to that question at all. This is a spending funding program of the federal government, and we have indicated that we think when states or local agencies accept money under a spending program, it has to be clear what the conditions are and what the liabilities would be uh, in accepting that money. And we're struggling in the preceding case with trying to figure out what the liabilities are under Title VII. It right. certainly isn't clear under Title VII. How could it be possibly clear under Title IX to a school district what the liability might be? I think you have a, a first step to take. Your Honor, the concern underlying the court's opinions about spending clause um, statutes is notice to a recipient. The language of Title IX is quite clear that discrimination based on sex is prohibited. And in Franklin... Well, in programs and activities of the school, I think uh, it, it speaks in terms of very broad concerns about schools that might not admit both sexes or might not enable them to uh, have physical education programs or that uh, discriminate in um, um, never hiring a teacher. Your Honor, we would email or something like that. We urge, though, that the, the, uh, actually the focus on the text of Title IX is broader than um, Title VII's anti-discrimination prohibition. Those concerns about admission policies and dying educational benefits, those are referenced in other clauses of Title IX, in addition to prohibiting a person from being excluded from participation in, which would be an admission policy that the district level at the policy level would clearly be carrying out, or um, denying someone the benefits of an educational program. There's also a prohibition against being subjected to discrimination under a program or activity. And again, this is an entity that only can carry out its programs and activities through its agents, and there's no justification to deviate from the normal well, but, background but, 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 principles for finding it. That, that's true, as you've indicated, with any corporate uh, or, or, or uh, fictional entity. 
but, but in this case, the whole thrust of Title IX is that there must be a policy or program. And now you're saying that the school can be held liable for something that it knew nothing about. It, it seems to me this is almost an a fortiori case, as suggested by Justice Scalia's line of questioning, for a Monell type of, 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 of requirement that the city or the school district has to have a policy that contradicts this program. And in this case, it didn't. Well, Your Honor, the other reason, the only reason that the courts have given, other than the text of Section 19 for imposing that policy, was the history of the rejection of the um, Sherman Amendment to the 1871 Act. And that was, you're looking at congressional intent and what Congress intended. At the time that Title IX was enacted, it could not possibly have been relying on the Monell standard because Monell was not decided. In 1972, when Title IX was enacted, Monroe versus Pape was on the books. So there was no intent but, of but Congress. The point, but the point is, how do we make the implied right of action that we've invented uh, parallel, consistent uh, with the terms of the statute that's being enforced? I think it's it seems to me this is an easier Frank case for excusing and uh, for having a Monell-type liability than 1983. I think the task of this court is to um, define congressional intent to the best it can. And in Franklin, recognizing the implied cause of action, it looked to the background principles against which Congress enacted Title IX, and that was the presumption of all appropriate remedies. Congress could certainly take it upon themselves, as they did in other anti-discrimination statutes, to step cap. That would be a policy matter. Would it depend, for example, on the number of employees as the cap under Title VII does, or the amount of funds that the school receives, or the um, amount of the size of the student population? Those are matters for Congress. And here, at, relying on Cannon and Franklin, the court has recognized that that presumption of all appropriate relief, including damages, should apply under but Title IX. But what about the, the issue of what kind of conduct on the part of the supervisory employer here, the teacher? Uh, Holds, holds the school district, and there I think you have a big difference between on the beach, open, everybody could see it, and here where nobody knew. Well, Your Honor, it, it's certainly um, not the actual knowledge standard that the Court of Appeals um, uh, imposed. Um, that at least it would be a new or should have known standard, and that's what the policy but is how about. how could a school district ever know about something like this? In many ways, Your Honor. They are educators. Part of the problem is to um, let students know about the other teachers knew about this that could have reported if there had been a procedure in place. Other students had heard about comments. There was the inadequate So if they had a great policy, then there would be no liability? Is that what... That could be a very significant factor, and it may undermine theories of new or should have known. Certainly liability also may um, be a defense to an aided by theory, depending if the plaintiff had any other evidence that she brought forth. Thank you, Ms. Thank Clayton. you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Jefferson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Frank Waldrop's acts were criminal in the state of Texas forbidden by standards issued by the Texas Education Agency, repugnant to policies actually adopted by the Lago Vista Independent School District, and morally repulsive to everyone in this courtroom, his conduct very properly landed him in jail. Prior to his apprehension, Waldrop had managed to keep his sins concealed. No one at the district was aware of these acts. No one in the school administration knew about it. No teachers knew about it. There were no rumors among the teachers or the faculty or the staff. There was no gossip. All of the conduct we're talking about here occurred off campus. He did not physically touch her in the school, not once. He did not use school facilities to accomplish his mission. He did not engage in sexually explicit conversation on the campus. No one but he and his victim knew of the child abuse until he was caught in the act in public. 
by a police officer. Now, well, other he, used, is, he used his position as a teacher, and it was a course in which she was one of the only or very few students, and, and some of this, the, the initial encounters, of course, occurred on, on the campus. Um, well, certainly their, their first introduction was in the context of a school setting, but that's all you have. That's all you have. I mean, the, the teaching role, it's, it's sort of like the first case, and I agree with the, the city in the first case. What the teacher did here was criminal. There is no way in the world that anyone could assume that he was acting within any way within the scope of his authority or that the, te that, that the district said, this is acceptable. Now, what Lago Vista's reaction when it was first notified of this relationship was swift and severe. The superintendent personally marched into the jail and delivered papers to the inmate, suspending him from any contact with the school. As soon as the lawyers told him due process was satisfied, the superintendent then marched into the psychiatric hospital and gave him his termination papers. Waldrop would not set foot in a Lago Vista school again. And well before it became an issue in this case, back in April of 1989, the district had adopted a policy forbidding sexual harassment by employees. That's at 420 of the, of the record. And within months of this court's watershed opinion in Franklin, the school district adopted a policy stating expressly that district employees shall not engage in sexual harassment of students. That's at 417 and that was in 1992. Now, the district's policy of non-discrimination, a general policy of non-discrimination, like the statute provides, was disseminated to the students and to the parents in the student-teacher handbook. That's in the record at, at page 389. Now, we understand why in the briefing and, and here this morning in oral argument, the petitioner would like to demonize the school district, but we are confident that when you look at the record, it will not support that attempt. The real question is whether Title IX requires the district to answer in damages for criminal conduct of an employee when the district lacks notice, actual or constructive, of the crime, and whether the district had any hint that its, that its acceptance of a relatively nominal amount of federal funds would potentially expose it to limitless actual and punitive damages, potentially. And we say no for several the, reasons. Uh, do you think the government could have with, uh, withheld funds in the future for this? Yes. You think they could have? Yes. So, therefore, you are acknowledging the school district violated the statute and the regulation. I don't think they could legitimately, but under their argument, under their argument, no, no, this no. is a I mean, under your, of under your view of oh, no. the law. Oh. No. No, because it's not a violation of Title IX to begin with. Do you think there's a difference in standards between an attempt by the government to withhold, revoke your funding on the one hand and a private damage action on the other? No, I think the same standard is going to have to apply to both. Now, Do you know practically how often the cutoff of funding has been used as distinguished from lesser remedies? Justice Ginsburg, there is no, no evidence of that in the record, and I do not know personally what, what the, the, those statistics would hold. Because that's a rather severe uh, sanction. Yes, it is. And defeats the whole purpose of the, the, fund, the funds. Indeed it does, and that leads to, to another point of the spending clause legislation. Now, if, if because some criminal, unbeknownst to anyone in the district, I mean, no rumors, no circulation of gossip or anything like that, is going to be cut off from federal funds and subject to potentially unlimited damages. I mean, the, the, the verdicts in cases like these are, and, it's, and it's, uh, there's no reason, I mean, we know why they are. They're, they're huge. They're in the millions of dollars. Now, you take a school district like Lago Vista that had, in, in the year that these activities were occurring, about 646 students in the whole district that's accepting, what, less than uh, around 100,000 in federal funds, whose whole budget 
is only about 1.6 million. Lago Vista is in Travis County near Austin? Yes, that's correct, Your Honor. Why would a district even accept the money? And that's the, the purpose of, of our bringing up this spending clause is we need to know, the districts around the country need to know that in exchange for receiving a nominal amount of federal funds, a judgment could wipe out the whole district. How much in federal funds did you receive? It was about approximately $120,000 back in 1992-93 school year. And that's in that, the, the, you can find that in the Texas Education Agency snap book, uh, snapshot that's in uh, the National Association's brief. And one, in the one. public record uh, in that year, in 1992-93, the entire budget was only about $1.6 million. One, one answer possibly to the spending clause argument is that uh, until uh, there was some kind of uh, an adjudication, uh, you, you didn't know that there would necessarily be a private cause of action. I think everybody accepts that. Uh, until there was some kind of an adjudication, uh, the district wouldn't necessarily know what kind of primary liability would necessarily give rise to liability, what kind of primary action would give rise to liability. But any school district is, is, is certainly deemed to know that because it acts through its employees, its liability, if there's going to be liability, is going to be dependent on some sort of theories of, of imputed uh, responsibility. And you did know that, and you, you didn't know a court adjudication to tell you uh, that you at least uh, ran the, the risk of, of liability imputed on the usual principles of agency. So I can agree what, with what's that. the answer to that? Well, I can agree with that. I mean, uh, everyone knows that in districts, as with employment, you know, the, the corporation acts through its employees, the district acts through its employees, and there's no question about that. So that, yes, we did know that if there was going to be liability, it would have to be routed somehow through the actions of its employees. Franklin is... Well, is that an adequate answer then to your spending clause argument? No. In other words, you, we're, we're not at the point of asking whether there's going to be a cause of action. We're not at the point of asking what kind of primary conduct on the part of an employee would give rise to liability. We're simply at the point of saying, how do you get from the employee's action to the employer? And, and you say, yes, we all understand that, that the agency relationship and the rules that define it will govern that liability. Well, if the rules that define it govern that liability, there is no liability here in an agency relationship context because what was done here was a criminal act that was completely oh, okay, away. but that's, that's not a spending clause argument. Oh, it that's is. A, that's an agency no, law argument. I believe it is a spending then, clause argument. I don't understand. Okay, oh. well, I believe it's a spending clause for this reason. And let's compare this case to Franklin. You know, Franklin is a case where the district, uh, where the, the teachers and the staff and the administration knew that this conduct was going on, knew that sexual harassment was taking place. This court, I believe, held in Franklin that that is intentional conduct of the district itself. Yes, they're acting through employees. I mean, they've got to act through employees. But when it came known to the district itself, no action was taken. In fact, not only was no action taken to prevent it, action was taken to silence the victim in that case. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a case of intentional conduct. And in Guardians, you said intentional conduct can make the district liable, even if it's spending clause legislation. And so that's the difference. Here, there is no intentional conduct whatsoever. There is no notice whatsoever to the district. And what the employee was doing, what this teacher was doing, was a crime. Was a, it should have landed him in jail, and it well, did land. This, this saves your case very well, but, but what, what you're saying with that test is that in the next case, when one, one co-teacher knew about it, that's enough. No, because I think that the, 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 the co-teacher wouldn't satisfy the test. 
of actual knowledge to the district. Why? The district has to act through its agents, you said, and, and well, co-teachers and agents. It does, but in order to hold the district liable, you've got to show that the district, and Franklin, the principal knew. It wasn't just the teachers, although they did, and they were trying to get this information to the principal. The principal was taking it in and then conducting a fraudulent investigation, well, didn't even I, look into it. So the, there you have someone at the level that the Fifth Circuit said would be responsible. Do, do you concede that we use agency principles, as we did in the last case, to in, determine when the district is liable under Title IX? I, I don't have problems with the court using some form of agency principles. My problem is that the principles that they're relying on, 219, 2D, and this agency, and this aided in, in accomplishing, they just don't apply here. They have no application here whatsoever. But when you say when you say here, you mean to your case, to our not case. to Title IX funding. To our, to our case is what I'm saying. That's but, correct. But you would have no you would have no problem in applying uh, agency restatement principles when to I determine say, the district's liability and determine when they knew, including constructive knowledge. Well, there is no such thing as constructive knowledge under Title IX to hold the district liable. That's our position. And so agency so wouldn't Suppose support. I thought there were under agency law, then I wouldn't be applying agency principles to Title IX. Then you'd be applying uh, simply strict liability. And, and, we, and we say for sure, we say that this court should declare that that's not the test. Strict liability is not the test and could not be the test. And the reason is, if you apply strict liability in a case like this, or in cases like these, not just ours, you're going to run contrary to the whole purpose of Title IX. We've all agreed this morning, at least in, in the briefs on, on their side and on our side, that this is spending clause legislation, which means we're talking about voluntary acceptance of federal funds. The district can either accept it or not. If the district knows that as a result of accepting a few dollars in federal funds, its whole budget could go to one victim and not to students at large in the district, well, then the, the, the district's not going to accept those funds. And then Title IX's role in that. the educational process Don't will be gutted. Don't you say that you do know that now after Franklin, if, you're, if your principal acted the way the principal in Franklin did? If there's intentional conduct by the, the district, yes. So there is a risk that you might have liability greater than the amount of money you yes, receive. Yes, but the district can say to itself, you know, we're not going to intentionally sexually abuse a minor student. And we know that. That's not going to happen. And so, yes, they can take the funds with Franklin in mind. But what they can't do... And what they have no notice of is if they take the, their funds, some janitor who does this is going to make the whole district liable, or some employee that the district has no notice of. Yeah, but the only difference, the, the dis difference basically is the difference in the amount of risk. The chances of having a Franklin-type principal are, are low. The chances of having a janitor doing something wrong are much higher. I mean, that's the, that's the, the distinction, isn't there? You're, we're willing, you're, in effect, saying, look, we're willing to run the risk of a Franklin situation and still take the money. It's not, not going to be willing to run the risk of the Janet situation. I, I, we, the, the district, and this district in particular, is not willing to take the risk at all and is going to do everything it can to prevent that sort of thing from happening, including background checks and making sure that people it hires are, are, sure. are great educators. So it's not a matter of, well, we're going to accept this risk because we know that this thing is going to happen. It's a matter of human nature. This, this thing does happen. It's a terrible and it's a repugnant and repulsive thing. But it happens in this in this country. What about and the Title, question is, Title Seven? You, are, 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 are you not liable for activity of this sort anyway under under different uh, different provisions? 1983 or you could be under 1983. You could be if you meet the the standards in Monell. A, a school district like Lago Vista could certainly be if it adopted some custom or policy that allows this to happen, or if there's a pattern that it turns a blind eye to and lets it happen over a course of. Uh, of, of the year a number of different times, there's some sort of pattern to it, certainly. 
There could suppose be Section 1983 liability. Suppose, suppose a, a school district receives a grant for a French program and there are two or three students interested and the teacher says, uh, you know, I, I just don't want to teach a woman. I'll teach the men, but I don't want to teach a woman. Is the school district liable? I mean, they'd be horrified when they find out about it, but that's just this teacher's quirk. Well, and when they find out about it yeah. is the test. What right. well, the they, there's one person who knows about it who is a school department official who absolutely knows about it. That's, that's the teacher. That's not enough. Why not? Because the teacher doesn't have the authority to bind the district to any policy. Well, the teacher like decides who comes into, say, her class, if it's a, I mean, uh, doesn't she? I mean, yes, but once that decision is made, when the district hears about it, and, and a, certainly a complaint will be made in that, in that situation, when the district hears about it, if they do nothing or if they try to cover it up like the, like the district did in Franklin, then there's liability. But if it's just one teacher in one class making that statement, no. Suppose it happens to be the superintendent who on his own is teaching that class. If, it, if it's a superintendent, I think there's liability. I think that... So you're dividing it according to the rank of the person. I am. And is there, is there anything in the law that says that the teacher is down there with the janitor, but the superintendent is up there with the governor, I mean, or whatever? I mean, what, what, what is it in the, the, the law that creates that division? It's going to be this court. Uh, it's, it's our, how, it's our no. how are we supposed to decide that? I mean, how, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the ground then for figuring that out? I mean, how, how would we, uh, I mean, what's the key to that? I, I had thought your answer, and your answer to me was it was a law of agency, which surprised me a little bit. I would think that you'd want something like a Monell policy rule. What, what my answer is, and, and I, think it, I think what the Fifth Circuit did was a clear rule a clear guide to the court and to the circuits that are divided right now is that the district will be liable if someone who has actual knowledge of the abuse was invested by the school board with the authority to supervise the employee and the power to take action to end the abuse and didn't take that action and failed to take remedial action. I think that standard sort of standard Monell -like. should be applied. It's, it's, it's a little less than Monell, isn't it? It's, it, it is Monell-like because it is sort of a deliberate indifference standard. You've got someone at, at a level, high, high enough level that knows and, and has the discretion the, to make decisions. The only, the only Monell case in which we talked about deliberate indifference was somewhat different than this. The standard you propose now would be more favorable to a plaintiff than a straight Monell standard, would it not? It, it would, in, indeed. In, indeed it would. But it's one that, that you, you know, the court is asking counsel here. What is the clear rule? Well, you're on the safe side of it, so it, it, why, yes. why ask for more than you need? Well, that's exactly right, Your Honor. <laughs> I want to mention one, one, one additional point here, and the Solicitor General talks about, well, you know, let's have this constructive knowledge standard, and I want to make a rather procedural point here. That theory, constructive knowledge, based on comments made to this teacher, uh, by, the, by the teacher to other students in the past, that, that, that has been abandoned by the petitioner in this case. I don't even think it's part of the case. The district court found no evidence whatsoever of constructive knowledge. The Fifth Circuit said they're not complaining about constructive knowledge and there's no evidence of it here anyway, and so we don't uh, have to Jefferson, address it. Will you help me out at one point? I'm uh, frankly a little mixed up on it. It seems to me your, your opponent argued, or the briefs argued, that, that the school district uh, violated the regulations because it didn't have an adequate policy in place. And if that were true, and if it conceivably would give rise to uh, cut off of funds, uh, why wouldn't the failure to, to promulgate adequate regulations also justify a remedy in this case? If I can answer, in this case, right. if we're talking about this case, the student here knew precisely what to do to stop this activity. 
and she testified. Well, but I, no, stick with me. Uh, do you de agree or disagree that there was a violation of, of agency uh, federal regulations? Well, I, I disagree in this sense. Franklin was decided in 1992, and within months of that opinion, that's when the district adopted a policy of saying sexual harassment of students means this, and, who, and here's who you go to report to. What I'm saying well, is... Were those regulations in, or that policy in place at the time of the conduct here? In, par in part. You know, in, the conduct began in the fall of 1992. This court's opinion, I believe, was sometime during that fall of 1992, and then the policies were in place by October of 1992. This conduct continued until January of 1993. Well, so what I'm saying it, is the four... Is it true that some of the conduct preceded the regulation? Yes. Some did? Yes. So but now, what's your response to, to... Say you have a defense after the regulations went into effect. What is your defense under the argument that I, I repeated to the pre-regulation okay. conduct? Before the regulations went into effect, we had a policy of non-discrimination, which is what Title IX requires, which was disseminated to the students. After 1992, after this court's decision in Franklin, the world But did changed. that pre-Franklin that, that pre policy comply with the federal regulations? I, you know, I think there was, technically, uh, the answer is probably not, because it doesn't say within five days you must report it. Uh, you know, the, the, a reported violation has to be, uh, you know, submitted to a committee and within 10 days of decision. So that sort of policy was not in place. Then how relevant, if, if it is the fact that during portion of the period there was a failure to comply with federal regulations, how relevant, if at all, is that to the problem before us? I don't think it's, I don't think it's relevant. And again, I, I, I must, I, the reason that I, I mentioned what the petitioner's knowledge was, was because a policy in this case would have made absolutely no difference. Ah, oh, I see. Uh, it, it's the causality element. There is a causality element. That's right. In this case, I had that policy made a difference, though. You you agree that not having that policy in place would automatically make make you liable? No, I do not agree with that. Well, I, you said before that you thought we had to apply the same standards for violation of of uh, the uh, um, the funding regulations as we must apply for, for liability under the, under the uh, personal action. Well, because the... the Do you believe that or not? If so, when you violate the regulation, you are automatically subject to suit, and the only question is one of causality, which will usually have to go to the jury, I assume. But then the question there would be funny, but it wouldn't be, the, it wouldn't be bound up with the private cause of action for the petitioner in this case. Yes, there could be a cessation of funding, uh, I don't think it would happen. I think in the in the real world, they're going to give the the agency is going to give the district a. a, a but it would be a jury question, wouldn't it? Whether whether the, the jury failure to have the five ten day whatever it is was was a cause of the injury here, and if it was, you'd be liable. Number one, I don't think the jury would get this question to begin with, oh. and number two, I don't think that the absence of a policy would make the district here liable for the criminal conduct of a teacher that the district knew nothing Well, about. then you're saying you don't really think that we should apply the same standard for the cutoff of funding that we apply for personal liability, or, well, you know, monetary liability. Well, except, except your, your question to me doesn't, doesn't get into what happened here in this case. If the I mean, funding cutoff isn't automatic anyway, and at, I mean, no. it would certainly there'd be a notice, there'd be an opportunity to come into compliance, That's correct. negotiation. That's correct. All of which are reasons why you wouldn't want the same standard for the two, it seems to me. The one is optional, the other you're socked with a lawsuit with no choice. I, I take your point. I mean, and, and it's true. The, there is the, the possibility of compliance uh, under Title, uh, Title IX. If there's 
You know, it, it would be as if, uh, in, as in Franklin, the complaint is made and the district does nothing about it. If, under Title IX, the, the uh, district is apprised of its noncompliance and does nothing about it, well, then the severe sanction, you know, of withdrawal of funding would be appropriate. But, of course, you know, what would happen in that situation is the district would come into compliance or would just decide no longer do we need federal funds. I mean, it would be their option. And, and so, again, I think under the facts of this case, the, here the absence of policy uh, makes no difference whatsoever. Now, the other, the other thing we need to talk about is was this actually sexual discrimination under a policy or under a program or an activity? And, again, we say, and, and, and I'm mirroring some of the comments made in the argument before, no. What happened here was a teacher who, to all intents and purposes, was a good teacher, but who did a criminal act, who engaged himself in an act that was private, that was purient, that was criminal, that could land him in jail and did land him in jail. That is not in any way associated with any education program or activity. Now, what, what counsel will say on this side is, well, you've got this sort of, you've got this sort of program and it's got to be implemented by agents and, and the agent here was a teacher and, and so therefore there's liability. But if we do go back to Title IX and the congressional intent, when you look at Title IX, what they're talking about, Mr. Chief Justice, as you mentioned, is things like discrimination in, in funding of sports or employment discrimination, you know, after, uh, after a decision in this court. Uh, that sort of thing, which is always carried out by agents who have the discretion to hire and fire or to fund or not to fund, it's always someone who has the sort of authority that we're talking about needs to be there before you can hold the district liable. What happened, and, and what makes this, this case odd, is Franklin and, and Cannon before it, you know, adopting a whole private cause of action and then this court becoming, in effect, a legislature. We keep coming back to the court for new rules and new regulations. Well, what about this, Your Honor, and what about that, Your Honor? Because now the court is sitting as Congress should have sat before if it wanted to find this cause of action, this private cause of action. The sort of agent that they contend is, is um, making the district liable is, is, not, is not proper because the agent here is engaging in purely criminal activity. If there are no further questions, we would ask that the court affirm the judgment of the Fifth Circuit. Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. The case is submitted.